Can you imagine what it feels like to be a Canadian soccer player as Peter Fanagas blows the whistle? It's official. Canada, 2000 World Cup champions. How does that sound? You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode 37 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo. He is Thomas Neff. The post-match shows have returned, so I hope you're all well-rested and ready to go. And, and the same goes for us, Thomas. How, how are you feeling? Yeah, it was a long day, wasn't it, Peter? It was, yes. You know, it wasn't pretty, but they, they got it done. Um, crowd looked great out there. I wish I was there being my, my hometown. We're halfway through the Ocho. Seven out of 14 games already gone. And uh, one, exactly one year from now, the World Cup will be happening in Qatar. Um, just want to say um, the podcast has finally reached 20,000 total plays. And the last episode was, was the first time that we've ever reached 1,000 total plays. So I just want to say thanks for that. And we keep getting uh, Apple Podcast reviews. So we're going to obviously talk about the Costa Rica match, preview the Mexico game. And um, CPL has uh, expanded uh, to a new franchise. All that and, and more coming up. Indeed, you touched on it there. Before we dive in, a reminder that the Northern Football Podcast is partnered with Northern Tribune. Check out the latest Canadian soccer news and recaps at northerntribune.ca and follow them on Twitter at North Tribune. And as Thomas said, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't done so yet. And if Apple is your platform of choice, then do what some others have done recently and leave us a rating and review as well. So as Thomas also touched on here as he sets up my transitions very nicely. It was a grind, but Canada picked up its third win of the Ocho following a 1-0 victory over Costa Rica in Edmonton on Friday night. Canada remains two points ahead in third, but are one point behind the U.S. and Mexico as it stands, and there's a seven-point gap with everybody fifth and below Jonathan David scored the lone goal after a Leonel Moreira clanger in the 57th minute. That is David's third goal of the Ocho and 18th for the program. He's now for adrift of Duane de Rosario's scoring record for the national team. Shout out to the defense as well, which earned its third clean sheet of the Ocho. It's ninth of 2021, and they have still only conceded 10 goals this year. Other notable moments from the game included Atiba Hutchinson matching Julian de Guzman's all-time appearances record with his 89th cap. He can break that record on Tuesday against Mexico, and Ike Ugbo also debuted off the bench. But Thomas, one of the big talking points from the game was the state of the pitch. So we got a few questions about that. Eddie Eng asked, felt like that field didn't allow us to play our game. It probably helped Costa Rica, if anything your thoughts and Shawnee boy and my dog Bert also asked why would they choose to play on a plastic pitch the answer is very simple Edmonton is going to be a host venue in 2026 this was used as a, as a test run to see how they would do hosting games but but in terms of Eddie's question Thomas what, what were your thoughts on the the pitch's conditions and how it all played out yeah like you mentioned it there I mean not only FIFA had to get out to Edmonton and see how it would do as a host city. But at the same time, uh, Davies wanted, um, not specifically him, but Canada Soccer wanted to go to Edmonton because of a Davies, uh, you know, coming back, you know, to his hometown and, and whatnot. And, and and knowing that they wanted to make it difficult uh, for Costa Rica. we They've said that multiple times. They want to make it difficult. Um, Herman, I'm quoting him directly here, wants to, wants to use Canada, not just Toronto, but Canada, to make it difficult for opponents. And they saw this as a perfect opportunity 
you know, to do that, you know, both Costa Rica and Mexico. But yeah, it, it, it hindered Canada a lot because it didn't allow them to play. And and I have to say, it looked like a World Cup atmosphere, you know, watching through through the TV. But at the same time, that pitch needs to be removed for 2026. Like, there's no way that, that we still have turf, um, you know, five years from now playing no. the World Cup. It, it won't be allowed, that's for sure. There's going to be turf la- or grass laid on the turf in Edmonton if Vancouver ends up coming back in. Same thing there. So that won't be an issue. But I said this the moment Edmonton got awarded World Cup qualifiers for November in that when you are playing against Mexico, that is tolerable because you do slow down the game, it becomes choppy, and then it's basically a toss-up at that point. Costa Rica is the more winnable game. That was the match where it was always going to hurt you. And anyone who has played at any level on a cold, hard surface like that, and I have a lot of experience playing on both wet as well as frosted over turf in Vancouver, um, it is not ideal to play on. You, you have to take an extra touch or two to settle the ball. Uh, th- that killed a lot of promising-looking sequences and counterattacks for Canada. Uh, th- there was a moment where Tejon Buchanan was trying to control a direct pass, and normally he would have had that under control after two, maybe three touches. But after the fourth or fifth touch, he was still trying to get it under control, and then he eventually turned it over because he just couldn't stop the ball from bouncing. So that really didn't help them at all in this regard. And that really is why I think they struggled so much in the first half, among other things, which Herdman touched on post-match. On this same subject, we did get an interesting question here, because this isn't the only poor pitch that Canada has played on. Uh, Stefan Jordan asked, what pitch is the worst to play on? This one or the one in Jamaica, which was obviously quite heavy and and, and sort of presented a, a different issue? Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting question. I would honestly say still still, still Jamaica, and the reason I would say that is because yes, the speed this pitch is like a, a plastic pitch, like you say, but the ball moves. <laughs> but the yeah. ball moves. It, it, it doesn't move in the perfect flow that you want it. It's still tough to control. But in Jamaica, you have to make a substantial effort for that ball to you know really find each other and and whatnot, and 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 without the the risk of, of falling and whatnot. So um, that's what I would say. Um, and, and helps us nicely, I think, anyways, uh, that the U.S. is heading to, to Jamaica to play on that pitch, on that field in, in Kingston, so that um, maybe Canada finish uh, top two. Perhaps. Perhaps they fall victim to that pitch just like Canada did. But both pitches are equally troublesome because one is heavy where you still have to take extra touches and you know, because it gets stuck under your feet or, or whatever the case. It's just a matter of the ball speed, like you said, and, and, and how fast it moves. For that reason, you, you do probably say it's still the one in Edmonton yesterday, as, as poor as, as, as that turf surface is, because at least Canada does play fast and they do have fast players, so they can theoretically keep up. But when you're playing on a heavy pitch, there's really not much you can do in, in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, if you're static and you're not winning the second balls or the aerial duels, when you decide to go long, you're not going to do well, and that hurt Canada yesterday. The The expected goals, keep in mind, were dead even at about 0.25 or 0.3 per team until David scored. So it, it very nearly benefited Costa Rica in the end. Finally, on this subject, we got a question here from Bean at Bean underscore talks underscore 
Should all future games be hosted at BMO Field simply because we dominate the ball and need the best pitch available to play with the ball at the feet? Thomas, pretty much if Canada has the option, they're pretty much always going to choose Toronto, are they not? They should have, but they didn't. I was looking at that match, Peter, and I was thinking in my head, wow. I mean, if they would have played at BMO Field, the difference it would have been in, in, in so many different occasions. But again... We did not find maybe two or three, Peter, clear chances of goal in 90 minutes. And when I mean clear, like, I mean shot on target. Yeah. And uh, and we just didn't. We just didn't. And um, part of me thinks that, you know, again, I don't think Vancouver, there's no way in, in, in January that Toronto gets it. That, that, that's for Vancouver anyways. But, but I agree with you. I think that... Canada should end uh, the Ocho in March in Toronto. And then if they have the opportunity to play at home, uh, it should always be Toronto because BMO Field has the best field in the entire country. Now, obviously, a lot of factors don't just go into that. It's not just who has the better field. Yeah. It's also about state, amount of uh, seats, uh, like this, what we were just mentioning. Uh, does FIFA need to do some more uh, research on the venues? Is an important player on the team, you know? Because, again, it is a marketing strategy, you know, at the same time. Going back to Edmonton, you knew that because Davies is the star of the team that he would, you know, really be the poster boy for this. And, you know, speaking to a lot of people back home, it really was, you know, like uh, for once, Canada Soccer actually did marketing. It, it, you, you would put it on the airports, <laughs> uh, on, on, on the commercial billboards, like not even in Toronto that happened. And um, It did happen in Vancouver a couple times when they went there, to be fair to them. But it, it, it's right, rare, right. that's for sure. True, true, but at the same time, I mean, they, they had they had fifty thousand seats to sell. So, so fifty thousand compared to thirty thousand is, is different. They have to, you know, get the ball rolling early, and and I think that helped a lot, especially the Oilers' appearance. Um, so, speaking specifically about that, a lot goes into venue uh, decision making. But but if it's based, it's solely based on um, on pitch, uh, as the question hints to. Then yes, hundred percent, I think BMO Field is the best one. And as you touched on, other factors do go into this, like the training facilities available to the national team. In Toronto, they have Downsview. The the benefit of Vancouver is they have UBC, which is a very good training complex in its own right. The problem is BC Place has turf, so they they don't exactly match up all the way. Uh, A lot of players are from the GTA, which has a lot of influence, of course. Travel does help, although the, the direct flights from a European hub in, like, say, Frankfurt to Vancouver compared to Toronto, the, the flight difference is only about an hour, hour and a half. Like, it's not that big of a difference. But if you're flying out of, say, Istanbul, like Atiba Hutchinson was or Kyle Aaron was, that that's basically a full day in airports and in the air, which is less than ideal. Uh, whereas if you're coming to Toronto, it's, it's obviously a little shorter of, of a journey, which is always ideal. The other notable takeaway... From the game, Thomas, was the lineup John Herdman named. He went 4-4-2 with Sam Atakubi at left back. Alistair Johnston was dropped in his place. First time since the Gold Cup group stage against Haiti, by the way, that Johnston hasn't started a game for Canada. Jonathan Osorio made way for Liam Miller. Tejon Buchanan stayed on the right. And Alfonso Davies remained up front with Jonathan David. Milan Borian and his sweatpants also returned to the fold. More, more on that later. Um, but we did get a couple of questions re- regarding the 442 specifically, as well as the personnel in that system. Uh, Stefan Jordan asked, What did you think about Herdman's remixed attacking 442? And then Dan Clark wanted to, to know uh, 
whether we could make sense of that starting 11 because it didn't make sense to him. So Thomas, what did you make of the formation as well as the personnel within it? Did it make sense to you? Well, look, I mean, not deciding to go with Osorio and Atiba in the midfield and deciding to go with Kay and Eustachio. Um, that's one. Not deciding to do a back three. Therefore, you know, Johnson's dropped. You have to only you can only pick one right back, and he goes with Larea this time, more attacking. Davies up front. Uh, therefore, Adekube finally gets a chance, which, by the way, he was amazing. And, and then, obviously, Laren. Laren had a stomach uh, bug, couldn't play. So you have to move Davies up uh, with David. Miller finally getting his chance, you know, to start a match after that Jamaica match. Um, and I say that finally getting his chance because obviously that Jamaica match, it was a rotational game anyways, but this was not. I, I would say this was a, a game that Canada had to win, and they did. But Miller getting his chance, I thought it was um, well-deserved. Other than that, I mean, the, the the 4-4-2, it just didn't seem like Davies was all, all the time on the left-hand side. I don't know if, if you saw it the same way. But yeah, for, for me, it, it didn't really work out in, in, in the entire period of the match. I, I definitely thought that once the substitutes came on, it did change, you know, sort of the the dynamic of it. And I was surprised that Herman made these these changes because you still kind of mix with, with chemistry uh, that they had previously. Uh, but at the same time, again, with so many players, um, you make four changes. And even those four changes, you could argue that the ones that were on are starters, like arguably starters, but they just can't fit all uh, in the 11. In terms of whether it makes sense, I think based on what was presented to the coaching staff before the game, in that Costa Rica were missing both of their starting fullbacks on top of Keylor Navas, certainly Ronald Matarita is integral to how they attack. And losing him meant that Canada would have an even bigger advantage on the flanks. So from that point of view, perhaps they thought we can control and dominate the flanks. So let's try to maximize our presence out there and just concede the midfield. But when I look at it from both sides, I can see the argument for the people who say, why did he do that? And then the other argument for, I can see why he did that. We've seen Canada go with a shape like this in second halves when they need goals. Like, this isn't new for them. They also started, I believe, the Mexico semifinal at the Gold Cup like this. Not with this exact personnel, but in the same shape. I have long stated that Canada needs to start games with three midfielders for maximum cover and the combinations with the wingbacks and forwards. Herdman pointed out that the forwards weren't really too active yesterday and that was the major problem and not so much the midfield balance or imbalance this is what he had to say specifically about that i think the uh the reality around around the midfield was you know you're trying to break a, a deep deep block on on a turf field and the, it took i think it took 20 minutes we got going we were we were good in the first 20 and we started to get a little bit stuck. We got involved in, we got involved in some of that dark arts of you know those little fouls, and then slowing the game down, and then we just lost momentum and rhythm. So I didn't, I didn't think the the balance was was too much of an issue. The issue for me was just the forwards finding their rhythm and loading the line. I think they they were playing. Um, quite individually at times in that first half after the first 20 minutes 
they they lost their rhythm. But I think after half time, you know, we made it clear they had to load that line. You know, the the sort of threat level by just positioning creates a massive threat to that back four, and then it opened more space for you know the Sam Adekubes, the Richie Larry is wide, and then it you know you, they started moving. And when they start moving, that, that front four, if they start connecting together, I mean, that's a special group of players. So on one hand, if Canada played on a proper surface and the forwards were active, it would have probably worked out. And in games like this, it should. When the forwards got involved, Canada had their best moments. That Davies opportunity in the 15th minute, I think there was a half-hearted penalty shout on Jonathan David, which shouldn't have been given, and it wasn't. That was another sequence where it could have worked out as well. But credit to Costa Rica. They snuffed out the cutbacks from the byline, which Canada loves to do, and didn't give the Canadians a lot of looks on goal. You, you had Buchanan and Miller switching flanks to try and, you know, drag out the shape. David and Davies were roaming at times. But all this being said, there were some negative connotations with the rotation itself. Without Johnston, you then only have one capable ball-playing centre-back in Kamal Miller. So when you have one of Stefan Ostakio or Mark anthony Kay or Sam Atakubi drop into defense to form the back three in possession, that prevents them from, from progressing the ball further up the pitch, or in the case of the midfielders, releasing the fullbacks into space from deep, which they do so well. And due to the pitch, and Davies trying to do too much on the ball at times, he didn't get time when he was receiving the ball up front, whereas he did against Panama and thrived as a result. And having three midfielders on top of that means one of them can make a secondary run into the box late, whether it's Waterspoon or Kay or Osorio, but with only two, you can't do that or else you're exposed on counters. So there were as many positives as there were negatives. So on the man of the match uh, in that game, Thomas, Stefan Jordan asked, did Sam Atakubi move himself into a permanent position at left back that was an amazing performance. C- certainly was. D- do you think he has now staked his claim for more minutes? Oh, 100% he has. So the thing with Sam Kube is his move to Turkey has helped him a lot, I think. You know, especially him getting uh, off on the right foot, starting there regularly minutes. But every time he played for Canada, he came on as a substitute. You can make the argument that maybe playing less important matches and, and when he came on, it was only 20, 30 minutes. But him starting from the get-go and, and pushing Davies up forward and showing to the staff that, hey, I'm not just the guy that you can put on and you don't really notice me, right? Like it's one of those, you know, you know, you, you do what you're at, stuff. So you don't do more, but you don't do less. You know, it, it, that was what, you know, the case for me was before. But in this match, he really standed out. And I think that Adekube, with this performance, having Davies play as a forward, but uh, but but again, I I, th- I really think that if Davies is to play forward from now on, you have Adekube, and he did a pretty damn good job. So if that's the strategic going forward, then I think uh, Herman should stick to it because he has a very very capable uh, fullback in in Sam Adekube and a very good damn good forward in in, in Alfonso Davies. Well, this is it. He has options. Herdman said this post-match when he was talking about Adekubi's performance. Adekubi himself even pointed this out, that it's really a a next-man-up mentality in the team. And this is the luxury. When you have the depth and the options Canada has, you can rotate as you see fit, depending on the situation, depending on the opponent, what have you. Because, as Herdman touched on, it was Lorea playing in that role in October. Before him, it was Davies at wingback. 
now you have Adekubi playing at a high level, and, and Herdman also mentioned how the move to Turkey has really helped him. So that is what benefits them here. No doubt he's in terrific form. He played very well in a complex role, and it, it does make me think even more about that listener question we got a few weeks back asking whether he could play left-sided centre-back, because he had to do it at times. I don't mind him being in that position. Like, he could end up being the next Alistair Johnston in that way. Um, I mean, you do lose a lot from him going up and down the flank, but when you have Larea and Davies possibly to fill that role, you can make that sacrifice in a lot of ways. Just to run through the numbers for Fermatakubi's game, he had 11 recoveries, two interceptions, four clearances, completed, I believe it was 52 of 66 passes, and some of the sequences in the final third that he was at the heart of and the outlet passes he was completing were brilliant, like truly outstanding and thoroughly deserved man of the match for him. Question here from Mark Carvalho. Was the stomach bug the reason Laren didn't start or was this a more strategic decision? I would say a little bit of both, Thomas. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. But but again, I mean, he is your uh, goal scorer in the 2021 uh, calendar. So to keep him off the bench um, on purpose, I, I think it was more the, the stomach bug, uh, the stomach bug, excuse me. But again, I mean, the to go up with uh, two strikers instead of three strikers, I think that decision, like you said, ultimately paid off, but it's not something that I would repeat uh, constantly. But I, I think he should start against Mexico uh, from the get-go. Yeah, I think you're probably correct. I think the stomach bug had a lot to do with it. The absence in October was the other factor, which Herbman had discussed leading up to the match. Plus, there was probably a heavier reliance on the flanks, given who Costa Rica was missing. So maybe they thought, hey, kind of win-win here. We, we get Laren rested up. Uh, maybe he doesn't get as isolated as often. And then he comes back into the lineup against Mexico and does his thing. Although th- there are some tantalizing options as to who to start up front in that game, which we'll touch on later here. A question from Andrew Remedios. Uh, it looked like Osorio's spot was taken by Liam Miller. Your thoughts, uh, Thomas, wh- what do you say about this? Yeah, Liam Miller looked, looked sharp out there from every opportunity that he had. Maybe the execution wasn't great, but again, I mean, no one's execution was great on that pitch to begin with, but Miller is the guy that I've actually been pushing for uh, for a long time now, even when you know some people... Uh, didn't have them in their 23-man rosters because, again, you can only fit uh, six to seven forwards in your team. And because those when you have the names like Hoylid, Laren, Davies, David, Buchanan, Miller was always in the outside looking in. And, and now with Ugbo and, you know, Cavalini's on our form or not. But, yeah, he finally got his chance, as, as I said off the top. And I think he finally got his chance in an important match like this. I'm not saying that Jamaica wasn't important, but, again, it was a rotation and I think he's finally proving himself that, that hey, uh, not only am I banging in goals uh, for my club team in, in Switzerland and Basel, but I, I can almost do it uh, in the national team level. I'm still looking for, you know, that really that, that moment where, you know, he's like, oh, wow, you know, like he's arrived. Uh, but he's getting there. I think uh, there's one thing that has to be said, and it's um, sometimes it's not the execution that counts, but it's the process. And if you play well enough, but you know, aren't able to deliver in those situations, then I think I think you're showing something that you can say, like you you give you give Herman uh, a way to think, you know, of you that, okay, you know, maybe he didn't score a goal, maybe he didn't do a key pass, but at the same time, he was still dangerous and and, and cost the Costa Rican defenders a lot of problems. 
Well, I still wouldn't say that he has taken Osorio's spot per se, but I mean, I feel it's the same as Atakubi. He got an opportunity. He's now a solid option when the situation presents itself. And he was fairly decent overall. He had one or two solid crosses into the box, didn't complete a dribble, but was fearless when taking on defenders, which sometimes he hasn't always done. And he was tracking back defensively. And the fact that he is in such good form with Basel means that he will be in contention to start. And from his point of view, it must be rewarding to see him get starts for the national team, having done so well for Basel over the last month or so. But it really is just another option in their arsenal to use. Question from Rude Trude, an interesting one here. Uh, If Tejon would have scored that bicycle kick, uh, which happened just before Jonathan David scored, uh, which would have been the nicer goal? Fonzie's goal against Panama or Tejon's bicycle kick? This is quite tricky for me to decide, Thomas. Yeah, maybe it should have been the uh, the poll of the the episode, shouldn't it? Possibly. Uh, yes. Yeah, I think still Davies' goal, just because of the effort that he had to run literally 50 yards uh, down the right flank and, and what it took and everything, even locked the goalie and whatnot. And um, yeah, at the same time, just like that, like the effort and, and the fact that it's Alfonso Davies, uh, too. But wow, that would have been uh, that would have been quite something. Uh, would have been a, a splendid Chilena, uh, as we say. The Chalaca. Um, yeah, exactly. But uh, no, that, that would have that was amazing. The second time it touched the post again, I want to reiterate that the Costa Rican center back almost almost headed into his own goal, but that would have been quite something. Like I, I remember my dad texting me in the game because he when he wasn't there, that he told me that the crowd in, in Edmonton really got up for that. And and I think if that went in, it, it would have probably been top five in all of Sports Center's top ten. You you would hope, that's for sure. Um if I really have to choose, I am a sucker for a bicycle kick. As amazing as that Davies goal was, and I take nothing away from him, the effort was unbelievable. And maybe I take him for granted because I have watched him basically from the moment he debuted with Whitecaps FC2 quite closely all the way to now. I feel like as soon as Davies kept the ball in against Panama and then started running towards goal, you almost knew what was going to happen, like what the end result was going to be. He had all that space to run into. It was almost inevitable that there was going to at least be a shot on target. That doesn't take away from the quality of the goal and the sheer individual effort from the goal, but a bicycle kick is just so sweet. And Buchanan hit that about as perfectly as he could have in that situation. Deflected, split-second decision, on an angle and very nearly curled it into the far post, which would have just been ridiculous. Like, the crowd would have lost their minds. I would have lost my mind watching it myself. Um, So I I would pick Buchanan's just barely, only because bicycle kicks are my weakness when it comes to world-class goals. Now to a quite simple question, but maybe a bit uh, trickier to answer, depending on your stance on this. Uh, Ed Barda asked... Basically, after this win against Costa Rica, are we going to the World Cup? Thomas, are, are, are you ready to basically definitively say that they are going to Qatar after this? Yes. Wow. Okay. One year away from now, uh, the World Cup will happen. Exactly one year from now, November of 2022, uh, mid-November of 2022. And we're halfway through the Ocho, as I mentioned off the top. Seven out of 14 games. Uh, not only that, uh, the fact that Canada is third. Uh, but we're also one point off both the U.S. and Mexico, and a lot of people don't like that Panama won, but I actually don't mind it, Peter, because it created that separation 
yeah. between the fourth and the fifteenth. And being that six, seven point gap, it's good because in January, I'm gonna say this in the most honest way possible, in January, Canada's in trouble. You have three games and you only have fourteen to fifteen European based players to choose from. Uh, the rest of the MLS players will be not informed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, think I still think we're going to get the job done um, because I, I, I looked at the starting 11s and whatnot and the players that are going to be informed in January. And I actually, you know, worked out some kinks and whatnot. And we still have enough to have a, a starting 11 that is informed. Potentially. Uh, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't want to bring these. I wouldn't want to start a, 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 a Kamal Miller that hasn't played in two months. You know, that wouldn't be the... Yeah. Uh, uh, especially against you know, um, you know U.S. forwards and and whatnot playing in, in in the top leagues in Europe, but yeah, I, I I think we'll be fine. But again, the fact that we're halfway through, we have this advantage. Uh, there's a six six seven point gap. We're on pace to make it to the World Cup directly, um, and just everything I've seen, and you take all the numbers and stuff like that, and even when before the Ultra started, uh, Chris and Jack actually said you know pulled out this this uh, stat sheet. Basically, it said that what, how much, how many points Canada had to get from each window in order to, you know, either stay in the hunt or qualify directly through, through you know, the previous yeah. uh, now called hexagonal, and, and we're right there. I mean, now Canada yeah. that even changes now because of that change. That yeah. Canada even needs less of what they needed before yeah. uh, every window. But you still said it there, and this is why I'm hesitant to say it. Certainly, they're probably going to finish top four, barring a complete and utter disaster in 2022. They still have four trips to Central America in very, very difficult atmospheres. Now, all of those teams, except for Panama, might be out of it. Maybe that eases the pressure a little bit. But they're still tricky to determine. And on top of this, Panama's still two points back. They're still rolling. That win that they got yesterday was massive for them, coming from behind to beat Honduras. And now they have El Salvador at home, I believe, in their second game when Canada plays Mexico. So that could actually narrow the gap even more. I'm not ready to definitively say they're going to the World Cup until around game 10, when they play the U.S., presumably in Vancouver. Because by then they'll have chalked off one of those Central American trips. They'll have played the U.S. in what is, I would be at least on paper, their last difficult, quote-unquote, game in terms of quality of opponent. And we'll kind of see what they're made of based on who is available in that January slash February window, because as you said, the MLS players are not going to be available. So that's why I'm not quite there yet, but they're in an absolutely fantastic position and they're exceeding the amount of points that they needed to get in every window. They're now averaging 1.85 points per game, which is ridiculous. Yeah, and, and, and look, they still have to get through that January window, as, as I already touched on, with only 14 uh, on informed European players, which will be tricky. But I, but if anything I've learned from not only this match and previous matches is Canada is the only team in the Ultra that still hasn't lost a match. Yes, We're the only team. Yep. And, and, and if anything, like I said, this match has taught me that you doesn't matter playing good, playing bad. Mm-hmm. Canada, I think, will get the job done. And I do agree that Central America will be trickier. But at the same time, uh, for once, Canada has depth. And again, we just need to, you know, rely on, you know, the European diamonds in the rough, per se, that, you know, maybe could accompany this group. But I think we'll we'll, we'll finish strong. I think uh, January, like you said, might be rocky, but, uh, especially for the travel. Because like you mentioned, yeah, as well. uh, Atiba and, and Laren not only would have to fly... Uh, into Toronto, but Vancouver, and it's only one home game. 
Yes. Only one home game and yep. two away games. Yep. So it's not like this time where you fly into Vancouver, two games, and then boom, and both games are in Edmonton. It's Vancouver, then Central America, Central America. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's tricky in that sense. But what I do think is that March, we will finish strong. So whatever happens in January, we have that cushion, like you said. That's true, yeah. Which is helpful, of course. But I, I'm just, I, I know what Central America presents. Anyone who listens to this program knows what Central America presents. This is a different team from past Canadian sides, but you just don't know. It's such a wild card. That's all I'm saying. Plus all the other that, That's why this match was such on. a must win. Yes, exactly. Closing out the section with this, probably the most pressing subject, Thomas. Uh, Blair Donnelly, second hottest topic I want to ask. Milan Morian's track pants. Good Lord, he looked like a goalkeeper in an over 35 rec league. Your thoughts. I am someone who, when I was playing in goal, would always love to wear pants. Not that style, I used to wear like the Casey Keller black padded pant style things because they were just comfortable. They provided protection on my sides, things like that. But the decision to go with sweatpants, listen, man, whatever makes you the most comfortable, it's cold out there. And sometimes the, the leggings under the shorts, like when you go on a run, doesn't always do it for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and actually, I've, I played keeper too, and I did the exact same thing. I was probably one of the only keepers without actually use the pants. Everyone else would... You know, use just the shorts. But again, that field, if you dive, you could you could probably injure your your knee yeah. or, or yeah. take a lot from your skin. So yeah. while it may be funny, at the same time, you know, Warren was doing the right thing, you know, by wearing pants. Because, you know, that as, as soon as you, you dive or you split in that, uh, your skin could really take a beating on, on that turf. But but again, I, I have to say, it, it didn't look like, you know, definitely a... And we can't say this, a Borean is a Champions League um, player, has played in the Champions League, but it, again, like you said, it did look sort of uh, funny. But again, people who maybe were in the stadium and didn't know soccer, maybe they didn't really notice the difference, but really a, a funny point, to be honest. Channeling is inner Gabor Kurali, the former Hungarian goalkeeper. Let's move over to the Mexico game, because Canada gets three days off as they await a wounded Mexico on Tuesday. They lost to the U.S. 2-0 in Cincinnati last night. It's the first time they've lost three competitive games to the U.S. in a calendar year since 1937. That just goes to show you the pressure that is on Tata Martino's shoulders entering this game. Luckily for Canada, no one did pick up a suspension, despite all three players on yellow card warnings starting in that Costa Rica game. First question, quite pressing, Thomas. Maybe this is why it's a bit of a shame you're not in Edmonton to confirm this, but Martin Bailey asked, which hotel is Mexico staying at? And then Nick Houston responded by saying, and what's their favorite tune? Listen, that tweet made made headlines, and, and all I can say is the Voyagers responded to that tweet, and they said, uh, oh, yeah, uh, <clears throat> they're taking notes. Well, you should have taken notes in September when I uh, <laughs> when I published the, the hotel locations of uh, the, the uh, Honduran, the El Salvadorian, um, and the Panamanian national team. Uh, not really. Um, if I was in Edmonton, you guys probably know this information right off the top. But it wouldn't be the worst thing in, in, in the world to you know really get in the in the head uh, of some of these players and you know greet them in in, in a nice way, of course, uh, when they head back to the to their hotel. Sure. In a nice way, quote unquote. <laughs> in, in, in a Canadian way, like you know, come on. I mean, we're we're yeah. This is Canada. We're never, never going to do something. <laughs> That's true. Yes. All right. Let, let's dive into some of the minutia here. Uh, Clay Gustafson asked, "What do you believe the starting 
11 next game should be. He suggests switching out Miller for Laren and maybe start Johnston. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't change anything else. So, Thomas, what do you believe the starting 11 next game should be, not what it will be? This is a very tricky question. I do think that Atiba will start this match if he's fit and whatnot. Okay. Three three midfielders and three forwards. I think it will change. Uh, there's no way that Herman says, okay, we're staying with the 4-4-2. I think it will be a 4-3-3. Yes, Miller did do well, but I don't, I don't think he starts the next match. I think Laren really comes in for, for Miller. It's tough to keep Johnson off the bench, but at the same time, how can you really, you know... Sub out Atakubi after the man of the match performance that he really had. It's I still think that Vittoria and Miller will will still get the nod. Uh, maybe this time we get uh, Henry or Cornelius. You know, give give him a bit of a break. You know, off the bench and whatnot. As Herman likes to usually use all his twenty three players or at least close to that. You know, knowing that he's tested twenty of his twenty three players in the recent windows. But yeah, I think the big question mark is um, it's a sorrow. It's a sorrow for me because um, a lot of people were asking for him and. Uh, as much as he's not your favorite player, Peter, uh, he is someone he that got merits. us a, a goal. He is someone that got us a goal against Mexico in the second. So at the same time, it's 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 hard to really keep him off the squad. But again, that's why the depth is there. I have a somewhat unorthodox eleven that I'm going to throw out here. You let me know what you think. That there are a couple of controversial choices here. One thing I will say to yours, I don't think Hutchinson gets the start simply because I don't think he has the legs to keep up in a game of this magnitude anymore. Having seen him in the Champions League... Now, Besiktas have been a train wreck in general, which probably doesn't help, but he doesn't look like he has the legs to kind of keep up with the faster players anymore. On the ball, still very good. That could get mitigated by the the horrible pitch. It's going to be even colder with possible snow in that game, which is going to be interesting. So, so that's the one thing I'll say, but could still be a very impactful substitute off the bench. That, um, so, so here's my 11. Borjan in goal. Johnston comes back in to partner Vittoria and Miller again. I don't think there's going to be any rotation with those center backs. That would be very, very risky to do. Lorea at right wing back. Osorio comes back in. Oshakio and K keep their places. Davies goes back deeper, and I will explain why. Buchanan and David up front. So here is my rationale for all of this. I know I said on the preview show last week that Laren should start, but for this game specifically, speed is going to be king. Not saying Laren isn't fast, but Buchanan has a different type of speed. Mexico center backs will be uncomfortable. It could be snowing. It'll be cold. They don't cope well with fast, technically gifted forwards, which Buchanan and David are. Plus, if you have Davies running in from deep, all the more reason. The reason why I wouldn't have him up front for this game is He's going to be heavily marked, possibly man-marked, if he plays up front. So he's going to have the same sort of issues he had against Costa Rica and that he won't have a lot of time and space to receive the ball and won't be able to do his thing. So get him making runs from deep. And it pains me to drop out of Kubi because I've always wanted him to start, but it has to be done here. And simply put, not every good player is going to start. That's the luxury of having so many good options. That's basically the exact same personnel as the Panama game. Even though Davies would probably start deeper, you can still, later on in the game, if you need a goal or you just want to put on even more pressure on the Mexican defense, you can have Davies move up front, shift Larea to the left, where he played well against Tecatito Corona in that game at the Azteca. Buchanan goes to the right, cutting inside. Him and Osorio maybe rotate covering that right flank, uh, get overlaps going with Larea and whatnot. 
And a reminder as well, it'll likely be Alvarez, Herrera, and Guardado in the midfield. So you need a trio out there. That's for sure. So so what do you think about all this? Yeah, I think you you make a good point about the midfielders, um, especially considering the way the Mexico game uh, went, uh, both in the Gold Cup and in the Azteca. Yeah, I think um, K Osorio, the thing about Osorio coming back in and, and K coming back out, with Buchanan, you get a lot more speed and and Buchanan having caused a lot of problems both in the Gold Cup um, and to other rivals. I think at this point you have to go for for the goals. And it's funny, Peter, because you know I was talking to a reporter from uh, TUDN, Univision yeah. Sports, Deportes, and he pretty much told me that in Mexico right now the 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 atmosphere with Tata Martino's pressers and whatnot, and and with the media happening there is that they asked. They asked one of the players in an ESPN interview, what's the reality? What's the expectation for this Nora Mundo? And they said two points. Two points for this window. And now that they've lost against the U.S., it, it, they're going in. They're, they're, I think their approach to this match would have been different if they would have won against the U.S. But now that they lost against the U.S., I think they're going to be super attacking. So I'm actually going to bring up a good point, bring up a, a point here. I would say that Maybe we see Samuel Piet start. You're right about Atiba. I think maybe he he doesn't have the legs for this, especially on this turf. God, <laughs> but uh, but Piet, I would say that because Mexico will be going for that heavy defensive touch, sorry, heavy attacking, um, you know, opportunities after opportunities, and again on this pitch, I don't think they're going to be able to do it as much as they they'd like to. But at the same time, I have full faith in Ostakio, but I, would, I wouldn't I would be uh, opposed to the fact of, of seeing um, uh, Piet start this match. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, attack on the flanks, yes, continue that. But but down the middle, I think it has to be solid. Yeah, and you need to have three. Like, that that's not even a question, not even a debate. No midfield pivots against Mexico. I will not allow it at all. Uh, on that same subject, we did get asked a question from Van S. Do you think Osorio should start next match? Thomas and I are both in agreement for a variety of reasons, but chief among them, the way he can maneuver with the ball in tight spaces could be very useful, and you just need the third midfielder in this game. He also has experience playing in very cold conditions. I think he did play in that Colorado Rapids game in 2018 in the Champions League, which I think to this day is still recorded as the coldest game ever played in North America. It was minus 19 with the wind, so that was freezing, that's for sure. Question from JM. How do we fit in Adekubi going forward? It feels like a challenge with Johnston, Lorea, Adekubi all fighting for fullback spots. How do you see him being able to be accommodated into this side? Well, uh, I would say that if Davies is going to play as a forward, Adekubi slots in perfectly. And, you know, if, if uh, Herman decides to go with a back three, then Johnston fills in as, as a right center back. Uh, with Larea there and vice versa, but I don't think there's going to be spot for every single one of them. And it's unfortunate that Adekube is, like you say, is the odd man out yes. uh, in this next game, most likely. But a lot of that has to do with opportunity, not really his his evolution. Obviously, as, as we touched on, his his club move to to Turkey. But when you have uh, guys like Johnston and Larea, who have you know from the get go of 2021 been. You know, guys, the first team, the guys that first team players always, almost always, because obviously this was the first game that Johnson had to start since the Gold Cup. It, it you you want to keep that chemistry together, and, and I think I think Adekube fills a role on that left hand side, but 
and I've been saying this for the longest time possible, Davies should always be playing forward for us. And Adekube is a safe spot. I would even argue that after Adekube, bringing uh, Gutierrez to back Adekube up as the fullback and, and and play Davies as a forward forever, you know? Uh, I'm not sure what you what you think about that. Maybe not forever. Certainly against Mexico, I would not play Davies as a forward, at least from the start. Later on, it's a possibility. From CPL 2.0 at 86 chills, should E.K. Ugbo start up top with David against Mexico, he looked very sharp. No doubt about it, in his 10 minutes he looked very good, but I would not start him just because he only arrived on Monday night. He's had no more than, I think, three, maybe four training sessions because I think they did two-a-days on, on one occasion, uh, and he had 12 minutes in that game. So it's still a bit too early, but he'd be a terrific substitute if you need a goal, just with the way that he moves off the ball and his pace could prove to be handfuls for Mexico. Yeah, that was really incredible in 12 minutes, you know, coming on this 82nd minute to substitute off Davies. You know, Davies getting a standing ovation from his home crowd. Plays 12 minutes to the 94th, you know, given there was four minutes about a time. One opportunity, one touch, and he almost puts it in the back of the net. Uh, well, what, an, what a first impression. Like, you know, there's a saying going that you're never really going to change first impressions. First impressions are, are everlasting, you know, for this goes for organizations, companies, people, whatnot. But wow, I mean, one touch and, and almost puts uh, Canada, you know, to kill the match to nothing. And I think that's what Herman was going for, Peter. I think Herman was going to kill the match. Of course. Um, yeah. and, and that's why he substituted Laren and Anugbo and, and, and even Atiba. And Anugbo was the more impactful sub, but at the same time, we can also say that because he was the new guy, right? Yeah. So more guys, more eyes are going to be on him just because we don't really know what to expect as opposed to the other uh, guys that, you know, we do know what to expect. But he, he was brought in to fill a role of a deaf player, definitely the the, the role of, of, of Cavallini now at this point. And, and, and going forward, I just don't see him as a guy that's ever going to be in front of a, a, a David uh, unless David is, is, is injured, then then I can see it. But as long as we have David and he's on form and he doesn't need rest, uh, then Ugbo gets there. I, I could see Ugbo getting one game um, in January, but in this window, it's going to be no. Final question in this section. Mike K at Sports Fanatic A. Do you see any Canadian players making a move to a top five league during the January transfer window? Only possibility for me, Thomas, is Kyle Lahren with his contract expiring and Besiktas likely out of the Champions League very soon. But otherwise, no candidates come to mind. I would say, besides Lahren, I think only one more candidate comes to mind for me, and that's Stefano Stacchio. Just because he's already in Portugal. Yeah, maybe. And you could make the argument that that interest that he had from Napoli, from Porto and such might come back. It is the January window, so a lot of less transfers happen in January. Uh, but other than that, you make the argument like guys like Rapo, Johnston, Larea, Kay, etc. It's so hard to get yourself a move from MLS to top five. It's so difficult. So mm. if they are to move to Europe, I do think that they might move to Europe, some of them. Yeah. But they're yeah. gonna do that stepping stone that that Portugal, Holland, Belgium, you know, the championship, they're gonna go to that stepping stone yes. league, which is higher uh, by from the MLS, but again, this it's so hard to get yourself a, a move to a top five. It, it is exactly unless you're Alfonso Davies. That that's the anomaly. Uh, let's wrap up the show with a few news and notes, as there were some big developments off the pitch. Chief among them, two hours before Friday's game, Canada Soccer announced that McLaren Global Sports Solutions, headed by Richard McLaren, who 
led WADA's probe into the Russian doping scandal a few years ago, among other cases, will be leading an independent investigation regarding the sexual assault allegations into Bob Berarda and Canada Soccer's handling of them in 2008. There were two big takeaways from this statement for me. The first is the timing. 7 p.m. Eastern on a Friday, two hours before a World Cup qualifier, when a lot of the newsroom staff have left for the weekend, is a little shady to me. MLS and the Whitecaps released their statement at around 5.30 Eastern on a Thursday. Still not ideal, but at least it was still 2.30 Pacific when Vancouver newsrooms still had their full daytime staff available to them. The second takeaway involves this snippet, quote, Canada Soccer has granted Professor McLaren full independence in his investigation and will commit to making the key findings of the report and all recommendations made by McLaren Global Sport Solutions Public. Note they only said key findings, not the full report. The firm who headed the Chicago Blackhawks scandal released the full PDF to the public. Hopefully McLaren does that if Canada Soccer doesn't. Otherwise, that is quite unfair and frankly not at all transparent, which is the least we should be able to expect from this. Your thoughts overall on this news, Thomas? Yeah, all timing, isn't it? Uh, two hours before the match. Pretty much just want that, you know, to really go under the rug. Um, you wouldn't want something of this magnitude to go out when nothing's happening, uh, that's for sure. But again, if, if a document was uh, publicly released to the public, then it's so difficult not to expect it for, for this particular case once again. And, and and realistically, if you know, if other investigations, you know, that handled by other firms were you know handled to the public, then and this one isn't, then you the first thing that comes to mind, Peter, from you know a neutral standpoint here, is wow, they're hiding something. If, if it's not something that's you know uh, you know put out there uh, just you know independently, but I do hope that you know some people you know are are to take responsibility here because yep. it, it's clearly not. Um, it has been like it's been shrugged off for so many years now that at, at this point, a statement, a press release for me, that doesn't do it. No, it doesn't. And you said it. If they don't release the full findings, whether it's the firm or Canada Soccer, then they're hiding something and that's shady as hell. So let's hope it doesn't come to that when the time comes for the investigation to conclude and the report to be released. In the CPL, Vancouver was awarded the ninth, emphasis on ninth, more on that later, franchise, which is set to begin in the 2023 season. Dean Shillington, one of the co-owners of uh, Five Six, or one of the co-owners of Six Five, mentioned on Sportsnet 650 that they'd like a municipality where a stadium is either already built or where the skeleton structure is in place. I think they're going to end up choosing Langley, Thomas. That just makes the most sense. Langley Event Center has that ground available, the the obviously the, you know, stadium skeleton available. They can pull in from Surrey, from the rest of the Fraser Valley, from Maple Ridge, that that's more than 600,000 potential clients that they could target. Where do you think they end up choosing? Yeah, Langley is the front runner, and uh, I actually asked uh, one of the people, you know, in Vancouver, what what the situation was there, and, and and they mentioned Langley off the top. So I mean, it does seem like that place. But again, when the franchise was first announced on social media, and I saw Vancouver, I said, oh wow. I mean, it 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 did look like a Vancouver team, but when you start finding more information about it, that hey, it's not going to be a Vancouver team. It's going to be a greater Vancouver team. 
and again, uh, to find out that Port City FC uh, has been registered, so uh, October 7th, so that will likely be the, the team name mm-hmm. uh, for this franchise. I think 2023 is a smart option because there's no way they can get it in for 2022 and it gives them a four year to prepare. All right, so this could be your time to drop a few more NEF bombs, Thomas. Uh, curiously, these are the same owners who own Pacific FC. That's Shillington, Rob Friend, and Josh Simpson. They're all involved in this. Could you see them selling one of the clubs? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I spoke to a, a source, you know, of, of what's left uh, in the CPL <laughs> because you know there's, there's a lot of changes that are, that are happening every single offseason. More and more people are leaving. It, it's a raucous in there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but look, the the whole thing. I when I looked at this, it really looked like a conflict of interest, just because of it's course. the same owners of Pacific FC um, in, in in serious professional leagues. You do not see an owner owning another team, even though. Forge FC is a partner in HFX, the worst, best kept secret in Canadian soccer, you know, amongst you know the the, the inner the inner circles. But again, Forge own uh, Pacific. It's, it's a minor percentage. Uh, they don't have say in, in uh, no sorry. Forge owns HFX. They don't have say in what HFX does. Uh, so if it it is this, then I wouldn't mind it at all because obviously the different operations group and whatnot. But at the same time. This time is different because they are, you know, it's it's um, Shillington, uh, Rob Friend, and and um, Josh, Josh Simpson, Simpson. Yeah. with another. So it is, you know, fifty percent, and they are the only football guys, right? So I just don't see how they're not going to have their hands on this, considering they actually are Vancouver based, right? Uh, a lot yeah. of them, you know, the the the, the companies <laughs> from Vancouver. Uh, Rob Friend, you know, he lived in, in Vancouver area for a long time. Uh, Josh Simpson, same thing. So they moved to Victoria because, again, in that time, there wasn't a chance to buy a team there. Yes. And and I've been told, you know, by a pretty good source that there's a chance that they might sell the team uh, out in Pacific or in um, or in, in Vancouver if the right investor comes into mind uh, so that they get the, the hands off of it. But, yeah, speak, speaking specifically about this ownership situation, um, just because we are in the matches are happening in Edmonton, um, one final thing. This whole year, FC Edmonton has been without an owner. The league owns FC Edmonton. And the Oilers actually inquired about owning FC Edmonton. And the league turned them away. Man. The silence says it all there, Thomas. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Um, I, as I try to move on from that, Neff bomb, my God. Look, the, the fact this club was mentioned as the league's ninth franchise made some wonder what does this mean for Saskatoon they were awarded a franchise earlier this year on the condition that they could get a stadium plan approved and commissioner Dave Klanikin said once that stadium bid is finalized then the overall bid will be reevaluated so why would they announce it when they did to just kind of drum up interest and, and to kind of show that hey expansion's happening like get in now well uh the only thing I, the only way I could say this is that CPL likes to award franchises to people that they feel that they like, right? That they have mutual agreements with. Because as we know, and you touched on it specifically, that Saskatoon, well, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan uh, bid, it was started by Joe Bellin. Joe Bellin is the one that started the the whole soccer summer series. He was the main guy there, and he was pushed aside because he had views against the CPL. And that's why this new guy, um, Al, came in. 
but they were working already together with Bellin. But again, it's Bellin who started it. Uh, so again, I, I don't really see the the purpose of, of conditionally accepting a team if you know that they don't have the stadium in plan already. And I feel like this is the same situation here in Vancouver. It, it's it's a conditional acceptance. It's it's right. like when you go yeah. apply for university, it's conditional. Depending yeah. on your grade twelve grades, right? You yeah. Keep, keep them up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's if if both Vancouver and and Saskatoon can get um, you know the stadium and plans approved, then then they're gonna be in the league. But if they can't, then you know, like you say, you, you said it there, there's gonna be this delay. But God hope this it's not the next Miami because I remember when oh, when geez, Saskatoon yeah. came around, uh, a lot of people were looking at this as the next AI in Miami and. And it just dragged on and on and on and on. But again, that's taking a stadium is, is, is no easy thing. Yeah, that took five or six years to finally get over the line, for God's sake. Final point here. Klanikin also said four to six clubs, I'm quoting him directly, are interested in expansion. There are reports that Quebec is very close to getting a team with the CPL preferring the Montreal area. Is all of this or any of this true? So back in 2020, I heard that there was inquiry about this, but it a lot of the interest really dropped. And a lot has to do with p- the pandemic, yes. But it's no question that, you know, the league losing uh, money and whatnot, I think that's uh, something that, you know, to watch out for. Um, I would not be surprised if, if Quebec, Quebec is still the, the priority for them. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Closing out the show now, uh, the CPL playoff dates were also announced with Forge facing York United on November the 21st at Tim Hortons Field and Cavalry welcomes Pacific on November the 20th. Finally, the Canadian Championship final between Toronto FC and CF Montreal has been set for November the 21st at Stad Saputo. That means the 2021 title will be awarded before the 2020 title which may not end up being handed out until the summer. So for Thomas Neff, I'm Peter Galindo. We will speak to you after the Mexico game on Wednesday. See you then.